dear friends, and welcome to the Buster Keaton Radio Cast, a radio show in which I, your host, Thomas Seymour Elliot Steen, reviews each and every film by the maestro himself, Buster Keaton. What a joy. But, faithful listener, this episode of the Buster Keaton Radio Cast is a little different than usual, yes. Instead of reviewing one of his recent films at the Picture Palace, like The General or Sherlock Jr., I have recently came into possession of a time helmet. A time helmet? What's that I hear you cry at your radio apparatus? Well, dear friend, the time helmet will allow me to go into the future, to a year of my choosing, where I will be able to review one of Mr. Keaton's fine silent films in the world of tomorrow. I have set the timer to the year 2018, and the device will place me into the body of a person of that era, so that I might attend the picture house to view their cinemagraph machine. I only hope I will find myself in the person of a strapping and handsome fellow of fine breeding. So wish me well, dear friends, as I activate the device, and let us hope my journey back is a safe one, and I don't end up in some half-light locality. To the future! another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone. As a television viewer in the 1990s or 2000s, It's likely that at some point one of your favourite shows will have broken format. And I don't mean just done something a little different than usual, but actually introduced some device or performed the show in a completely different way than they usually do. Some might call them gimmick episodes and it's as fair a description as any. Although not limited to the 90s and 2000s, It did become quite a common thing at that time to do these episodes that really broke the format. Some format breakers are quite subtle, like in the early seasons of the new Doctor Who series, they would sometimes feature an episode where the Doctor himself barely appeared. But some gimmick episodes are more overt. For example, the characters might sing for some reason, like in the episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer called Once More with Feeling, where a singing demon is summoned that causes the characters to sing their true feelings in the style of a musical. The comedy show Scrubs did a similar episode, where when seen through the eyes of a woman with a brain tumour, the cast would also spontaneously burst out into song. Shows like ER and The West Wing did episodes where they would perform the whole thing live, and Third Rock from the Sun broadcast an episode in 3D. These episodes are just a few examples, the list goes on and on, like again when Buffy the Vampire Slayer did an episode that was 
mostly silent. But as is often the case, the Twilight Zone did it first, once upon a time. Mr. Mulligan, a rather dour critic of his times, is shortly to discover the import of that old phrase, out of the frying pan, into the fire. Said fire burning brightly at all times in the Twilight Zone. First broadcast on December 15th, 1961. Written by Richard Matheson and directed by Norman McLeod. If you're going to do an episode that pays homage to the early years of Hollywood, then it makes sense to get a director who worked in that era too. Norman McLeod was born in 1895, according to the Twilight Zone Encyclopedia and IMDb. But Wikipedia says he was born in 1898, so I'm going to go with Steve Rubin on this one and we will say it's 1895. He was a pilot in World War I and he started out in show business as an animator, but directed his first feature in 1928, the silent movie Taking a Chance. It's hard to tell how many of the 57 directing credits that he has were silent without going too deep into his early films and IMDB appears to be a little inaccurate in that regard sometimes with their information. But we at least know that he did have some experience in the silent movie arena and went on to great success in the talkies and worked with some of the greats. He directed the Marx Brothers in Monkey Business in 1931 and Horse Feathers in 1932. He directed Bing Crosby in Pennies from Heaven in 1936 and Danny Kaye in The Secret Life of Walter Mitty in 1947. So he was a real old Hollywood guy. And if you look at pictures of him, he has that textbook old Hollywood director look. You know, he looks a little like Charlie Chaplin when he wasn't in his tramp get-up. He did transition to television in the 50s though and his output just kind of ticked over Joran the rest of that decade. Buck Houghton said of him in The Twilight Zone Companion, he wasn't working a lot, he didn't want to, but he thought, my God, work with Buster Keaton? Lead me to it. Martin Grams Jr. says in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic that this was his final work behind the camera. However, IMDb does list a couple of things after it. An episode of The Ginger Rogers Show and an episode of Vacation Playhouse in 1963. Now whether they were actually filmed before the Twilight Zone and released after is a possibility, so Martin Grams Jr. may be right there. Now he died in 1964, so only three years after this episode was released, and does he do a good job on it? Well, we'll talk about that as we go on. Rod Sailing's opening narration, I have to say, I am a little disappointed by that they never really brought this into the silent movie arena too with just some crackly footage of him talking to the camera but not actually being able to hear him and some cards on the screen giving a short monologue. You know, really just buying into what they were doing here. As it is, he pretty much just gets out of the way as quickly as possible to let things carry on in the style they're trying to emulate. And there is a very good reason for this, which we'll go into in a moment. 
In the last episode of the Twilight Zone podcast, we looked at the first Charles Beaumont episode of season three. And now we're looking at the first Richard Matheson episode of season three too. Originally, he titled this episode, The Buster Keaton Story. And he was actually acquainted with the actor. Matheson says in the Twilight Zone companion, I met Buster Keaton through Bill Cox, a writer friend of mine. And I thought, gee, That would be wonderful if we could get Keaton into the Twilight Zone. So get Keaton into the Twilight Zone, they did. Our opening scene sees Buster Keaton playing Woodrow Mulligan, the disgruntled hero, and he lives in Harmony, New York, and he's having a walk through the town. I don't propose to go through this opening section of the episode step by step, but suffice to say Woodrow Mulligan, played by Buster Keaton, walks through town grumbling about the price of certain things and annoying the local policeman. And these things are set up to be mirrored in the later scenes. But what we do get is a glimpse of Buster Keaton's ability, even now that he's in his 60s, to perform at a very physical level. Early on he falls into a water trough, and then he falls face first into a trap door in the next scene. And it's pretty low level compared to what he used to do back in his heyday. But as the episode goes on, I think we do see that he's not afraid to put himself out there and take some bumps to get this thing made. So after falling in the water trough, Mulligan goes to his workplace, where he's employed as a janitor. And while he's in the basement, he puts his wet trousers through a clothes wringer and he of course gets his finger stuck in it for a moment. And this little gag is based on an accident that he actually had when he was two years old. And he did actually get his hand caught in a closed ringer and lost the top of his right index finger as a result. Now I'm going to pause here for a moment while we're still in the silent era to go into a little more history of the episode. I don't think it's spoiling anything to say that while I usually try to latch on to little bits of meaning or social commentary in an episode, here that is in a little short supply. But there is a fair bit of information about how the episode came to be what it was. I mentioned earlier how I was a little disappointed that Rod Serling's opening narration didn't actually fit in with the whole silent movie thing. Originally the opening narration was a bit longer. Witness now the approach of one Woodrow Mulligan, resident of the good town of Harmony, New Jersey, in this, the year of our Lord, 1890. The saturnine Mr. Mulligan is en route to his duties as a janitor for Harmony's one and only inventor. Mr. Mulligan is a rather dour critic of his times, a critic, be it added, who is shortly to discover the import of that old phrase, out of the frying pan into the fire, said fire burning brightly at all times, in the twilight zone. Now the startling fact about this episode, and it's quite hard to wrap your head around if you don't actually know it, and I'm sure a lot of people out there do already, but when I first learned this a while ago, it was quite a difficult one to comprehend. And that fact is that these silent scenes from 1890 were not originally intended to be silent. There was still this time travel element to the story, but both parts of the overall piece were originally filmed as one long episode with 
dialogue in both time periods. Now Martin Grams Jr. writes that Sailing's opening narration was already filmed, so that's why they kept that as it is, and didn't actually do something maybe a bit more in fitting with the overall thing. So the original piece had Mulligan walking through town, complaining about the price of things and the noise and so on, the way it went. But we were able to hear those grumbles and hear him saying those actual lines. Now Buck Houghton said, obviously, if we establish Buster Keaton as a janitor living in 1890, who accidentally puts a helmet on his head and suddenly discovers himself in 1962 in the middle of a busy intersection without his pants on, then comedy will have a field day. So this piece was just written as an out and out comedy from beginning to end. But when the rough cut was made, it just didn't work. And Martin Grams Jr. in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic said that someone on the production crew had an idea to make the 1890 scene silent. And that's what they did. But even then it didn't quite click just having the scenes be silent. Buck Houghton said in The Twilight Zone Companion, this thing sat on the cutting room floor for weeks and weeks, while the editor Jason Burney and I wondered how to get the goddamn thing to work better, because it seemed to go kind of slowly if there's one apple, and two apples, and three apples, and by then you're bored to hear me talk about the fourth apple, so it needed a goose. So what they decided to do was only use two out of every three frames shot in the silent sequences, which sped the piece up and created that look of silent movies. So this changes things quite a bit, the flow of the whole thing. So it seems that when Filmon was finished, they were in a position where they were trying to fix what they already had, rather than this device of the silent film being incorporated in Matheson's story from the beginning. And that blows my mind for the simple reason that, without this device of the silent movie part of the story, and going from 1890 to the 1960s and shifting the film style, what's left? You know, doing it seems to be the point of the episode, the thing that makes it unique. Because without it, all you have is half an hour of pretty bad comedy. So to get an idea of what that could have been like, I'm going to jump formats myself for a moment and talk about Twilight Zone Radio. I've mentioned many times that I really enjoy Twilight Zone Radio and what they've achieved with an audio version of the show. And they can be really inventive sometimes in overcoming the hurdles of adapting episodes that don't really fit into the audio medium. Episodes like The Invaders, for example. So what do you do when you can't really portray a silent movie on the radio? Well, in this case, they went back to the original plan and just had it as one long talking piece. Out of my way, you vermin! What are pigs doing out on the street anyway? It's not sanitary. You should be in a sty or a sandwich. Good morning, friend Woodrow. What's so good about it? Well, that's the spirit. Keep your chin up. Uh, what'll it be this morning? Daily Courier. <clears throat> Daily Courier. That'll be two cents, Mr. Mulligan? Two cents? 
Two cents. Same as always. Seems more expensive. Thank you very much, sir. Now, let's take a look. Government surplus. Can you believe it? Believe what, Mr. Mulligan? Government only earns a million and a half dollars more than it spends. First thing you know, they'll owe money. Then everything will collapse. Inventory predicts every hundredth man will own a horseless carriage someday. <laughs> That's all we need. I already know what the newspaper says, Mr. Mulligan. You don't have to read it back to me. You read it? Of course. My copy? Not your copy, Mr. Mulligan. My copy? I wouldn't dream of tampering with your daily courier. I can assure you no human hands have touched that newspaper. Well, except for the printers, of course. I should think not. At least some people still have standards. You may have recognised there that Jonathan Rhys-Davis plays Woodrow Mulligan in this version. And he's always a lot of fun as an actor. And I say this with no disrespect to Twilight Zone Radio because I do think very highly of it. But I think this one does illustrate that without the device of the silent film, the story really is nothing. To give it its due, at the end when Mulligan is back in his own time, they do portray him as finding his peace and quiet again quite well because they don't have that saloon piano plinking away in the background constantly. But unfortunately that's about it. I think a better way to have approached it would have been to go back into the history of that format, the radio format, and had the 1890 scenes be done like an old time radio show, with that very formal delivery and put an effect on the voices to make it sound like an old radio recording with some hiss on it. Now I've no idea how to do that myself, but I'm sure it could be done. And then when Mulligan goes to the future, have the audio clear again and a bit more of a naturalistic acting style. That's how I would have done it, you know, play to the advantages of radio. So with Woodrow in his employer's basement, it's time to bring him to 1962 and they do that by his employer, Professor Gilbert, introducing the time helmet. So Woodrow puts it on with the intent of going to a different time for some peace and quiet. Now I'm not quite sure that makes sense, but okay. He goes forward into the year 1962. I think the split between the two time periods is done really well here, you know, the smoke, the sudden noise as he finds himself in the middle of the road, surrounded by cars, and the effect of the film now being at normal speed, it is quite impactive. And there's a real sense of separation here, and we get all the callbacks to the signs that we saw earlier on in the episode to show how things have moved on in the intervening years, the price of steak and hats, and so on. So it starts well at least, but then we get this sequence where a driver with his arm out of his window seems to pluck the helmet off Woodrow's head, seemingly by accident, and then is trying to get it off his arm, which just looks ridiculous, and that then leads on to a chase where a kid on roller skates picks the helmet up 
and Buster Keaton chases him on foot and then on a bike. Back in his heyday, Buster Keaton was a very slim fellow and he looks quite heavy set in his later years. But I have to say it's impressive how he can still move for a guy of his years. And this chase culminates in Woodrow bumping into our other main character, Rollo, played by Stanley Adams. Mm, you say you're from 1890, huh? What proof of you? Proof? Yes. Ah, that watch, those clothes. Where did you get them? They're mine. Is it possible? Quickly, who is the president? You mean Benjamin Harrison? Benjamin Harrison, and before him? Grover Cleveland. But what's that? By George, I believe you, sir. I believe you, you are from 1890. Well, that's no news to me. How to get back would be news. Being born in 1915, Stanley Adams was 20 years Buster Keaton's junior. Now, as IMDb bio says that his career in the movies was relatively minor, apart from a memorable role in Breakfast at Tiffany's. And they say that his bread and butter was more supporting roles like ethnic villains or bartenders or fast talking characters in general. And if you look down his resume, he does pop up in a great number of the popular TV shows of the time like Lost in Space and later Gilligan's Island. But to me, I'll always remember him most as Serrano Jones in the famous Star Trek episode, The Trouble with Tribbles. And he returned to voice the character again in the Star Trek animated series. And then further on, footage of him was used in the Deep Space Nine episode, Trials and Tribulations, where the crew of that show travelled back in time to the Enterprise during the Tribble incident. Now sadly, Adams took his own life at the age of 62 in 1977. And that was possibly due to depression that he suffered as a result of a back injury that caused him both a lot of pain and limited his ability to work. So how is he in this episode? Well, it's hard to really critique his performance separately from what he has to do in the episode. The character of Rollo, I think, is made to be a bit of a throwback to supporting characters you would see in early silent movies or the early talkies, you know, the large heavyset man in a suit getting annoyed by Charlie Chaplin or Laurel and Hardy. So he's given this character to play and it is a very big character in terms of the performance style and he has this very distinct way of speaking. So he speaks with this very affected voice, kind of like, So let me understand this, sir. You have this funny-looking hat in your hand, no pants, and you say you have to get back to somewhere within 15 minutes, right? So I guess it depends on your perspective. If you like and enjoy the episode and find it funny, then this character will probably work fine for you in the overall scheme of things. And I can't fault him for basically performing the character as I assume it was written, and he was told to. It's hard to say without knowing how much he brought to it himself, but considering the tone of the whole thing, I can't really fault him for giving a performance in keeping with that tone. Proprietor! Uh, proprietor! Yeah? Would you come here a moment, please? <coughs> yes, please. What is it? Can you fix it? We can fix anything. Good. 
Thursday, about 2 o'clock. Thursday? After the helmet is broken, Woodrow and Rollo take it to a repair shop to be fixed. And these scenes were actually filmed after the rest of the episode. As originally filmed, the 1962 scenes featured a chase through a food market where Rollo was trying to purchase a television tube, which was then used on the helmet. After they decided to make the 1890s scenes silent, Buck Houghton said in the Twilight Zone Companion, Having done that and found it was a good notion, the episode needed an added sequence, and that sequence in the repair shop was directed by someone else months later. And that director was Les Goodwins, and if it's the same Les Goodwins I believe it was. He was also a very old Hollywood director, who'd been directing since the 20s. I have to say that these scenes in the repair shop really kind of drag for me. You know, this broad comedy performance of Adams and gags that just seem to keep falling flat. Like the guy behind the counter constantly telling Rollo not to touch his tools. They just really don't work for me. And in a show that can be as poetic as The Twilight Zone, you know, this isn't good. And I know it's not going for poetry, it's going for laughs, but there really are none to be found here. And it just becomes this noisy, obnoxious thing. What is that little thing in there? Oh, that, well, that, that you see, it? that is a Look, transiton. Pad, don't, don't touch my tools if you don't mind. You see, I'm merely trying to uh, point out to you that I, in order to uh, facilitate you were, that... Don't point with my tools, please. Would you allow me to please make this clear to you? Oh, we have to don't know, you understand? That's mine. Oh, just a moment. If there is a redeeming feature in all of this, it's that I find Buster Keaton quite fascinating to watch. There's a scene where a policeman is looking for him and he walks behind Rollo and then when the policeman goes behind them he walks in front of Rollo. Now these two actors rehearsed all their scenes for two days together to get all of this timing down pat and it's the kind of gag you would see Buster Keaton doing in one of his old films. So how do I really do a bio on Buster Keaton? There is an argument that says that, while this wasn't him at the height of his career, in a lot of ways he was the biggest star to ever grace the Twilight Zone. Joseph Keaton was born in Kansas in 1895 and went more or less straight into show business. His father, also named Joseph, owned a travelling show with Harry Houdini called the Mohawk Indian Medicine Company. Now legend has it that Houdini himself gave him the nickname Buster after seeing him tumble down some stairs without getting hurt because in those days the term Buster was slang for a fall. So Buster started performing on stage with his parents at the age of three in an act called The Three Keatons and apparently his mother would play saxophone while him and his father would act out this scenario where Buster disobeyed his father and goaded him on stage and his father would throw him against the scenery or into the orchestra pit and Buster even had a handle sewed into his clothing to assist him in being thrown about. So it really was a different time, I'm not sure how well a, uh, an act where a kid gets beat up on stage would really go down these days 
But through doing this, he learned how to fall and not get hurt. And he later said that the secret is in landing limp and breaking the fall with a foot or a hand. It's a knack. I started so young that landing right is second nature with me. Several times I'd have been killed if I hadn't been able to land like a cat. Now Buster found the whole act so much fun that he would often start laughing when he was thrown about the stage, but noticed that this didn't get as many laughs when he laughed. So then he adopted his famous deadpan expression, which later earned him the nickname Stoneface. In 1917, he made his film debut in a short called The Butcher Boy, where Fatty Arbuckle got top billing. And if you watch that short now, it's quite simple compared to what Keaton would achieve down the line. But you can still see how he really has a finely tuned way of moving. And as his career goes on, especially when he started to direct his own features in 1920, he really made the science out of how he moved. He was later given his own production unit, Buster Keaton Comedies, and went on to make some of his most famous films like The General, Steamboat Bill Jr. and Sherlock Jr. Later on, he traded his independent setup for employment with MGM, which more or less coincided with the advent of talking films and television. But this was a move that he later regretted and said it was the worst move of his life. One of the things he had to endure while at MGM was using a stuntman because they wanted to protect an investment and he's famously quoted as saying, stuntmen don't get laughs. Now there are reams and reams of things written about Keaton but one thing that comes up in a lot of the things I've read is that people are fascinated by his transition from silent films into talkies. Apparently, he wasn't necessarily opposed to that because he had a fine baritone voice and was happy to use it. But later on, it seems he looked back with mixed feelings. He said in every picture it got tougher. They'd laugh their heads off at dialogue written by all your new writers. They would joke happy. They didn't look for action. They were looking for funny things to say. So reading some of that material about him out there, there is a sense that the decline of silent film was also the decline of his career. But, you know, I think I would really need to dig into his filmography more to see if that was the case. People do seem to be quite eager to portray him as a bit of a tragic clown because there is a certain romance to that. But if you look down his list of credits, he did seem to carry on working pretty steadily throughout the rest of his life. But there is a sort of element of tragedy in his personal life that probably adds to that whole thing. When he divorced his first wife in 1932, she took his entire fortune. So this and the loss of independence as a filmmaker were two factors that caused him to slip into alcoholism. He then divorced his next wife, May Scriven, in 1936, which again proved costly for him. But then he married Eleanor Norris in 1940, and they were together until his death, and she helped him work through his problems like his alcoholism. Now Buster Keaton died in 1966 of lung cancer, something he was never told that he had, they actually kept that from him and he didn't know he was terminally ill either. 
he thought he just had severe bronchitis. And this silent segment of The Twilight Zone isn't the last silent thing he did. He starred in a short film called The Railroader in 1965, which is completely silent but doesn't utilise the speeded up aspect of silent films. But he is quite interesting to watch in, especially when you watch it side by side with some of his early stuff. And in a lot of ways, it is probably more than this Twilight Zone episode, a more fitting goodbye to him in silent movies. And I have to say, I come away from this with a real respect for Keaton, who admittedly, I didn't really know much about. But you go back into his career and it's just fascinating how he channeled that way of moving that he practiced since childhood into his films. And when he landed in films, he learned all he could so that, so that he could utilize it to its best potential. And he had this really scientific and clinical approach to the placement of cameras and people and what would sell the gag the best. But then because of his skill as a performer, after he'd figured that out, he would just absorb all that and perform it like it was the easiest thing in the world. Buck Houghton said in The Twilight Zone Companion, the experience with Keaton was absolutely wonderful. He is a legend in his own time, for goodness sake. And he was exactly as reported. He was very sober about comedy. He'd take me out on the street and say, Buck, you can't do it that way. If I start here, then the gag works. But if I start there, you can never make it work. Such things as walking behind a policeman in step and disappearing down a manhole just before the bed comes. You know, those Rube Goldberg devices that the picture was full of. He knew right down to the jot what made it work. It was fascinating too, to be walking around the back lot and have the art director say, you know, this section of street was built for a Buster Keaton comedy in 1921. Now, I know people of all ages listen to the Twilight Zone podcast from the correspondence that I've had, and I'm sure there are a few Keaton aficionados out there. But for those who aren't and haven't really experienced his work, what I would say to you is this. At the very least, go onto YouTube and watch a compilation of some of his best moments and prepare to be amazed. I do wish that this episode was better for him but he does bring his best to it, and it's clear that although he isn't as fit and as nimble as he used to be, he's still the master of what he still can do. I envy you your trip, sir. 1890 is a wonderful period. <laughs> For instance, no income tax. <laughs> income tax? I am a scholar of that period, sir. It has a charm, nay, a fascination for me. The very thought of having lived in those halcyon days. I'll sure be glad to get back, if I ever do. Uh, how much time has they left? Oh, we got less than five minutes. So back they go to 1890, but Rollo soon finds that it's not for him. And Woodrow puts the time helmet on his head and sends him back to his own time. So the finished product Richard Matheson wasn't really a fan of. I had so much more going on. It was so much funnier what I had written. Obviously because of cost reasons, the second act became this interminable scene in the repair shop. But I had it as a chase from beginning to end, 
with him going through a car wash and a supermarket on a bike, it never stopped for a moment. After he meets Stanley Adams though, it just stagnates. I can't disagree with that, but I'm not sure what Richard Matheson had planned would have worked much better for me either. I am quite conflicted on this episode. Not so much in as I can't make up my mind as to whether it's good or bad. I'll lay my cards on the table and say, I don't think it's very good at all in the scheme of things. So it's probably more accurate to say that my feelings are quite mixed on it. There is this very slight message of stay in your own backyard, enjoy where you are, make the most of your life and don't waste time grumbling about what you could have or should have or things you can't change. In this case, it seems that they really focused on making this an out-and-out comedy with that little bit of meaning behind it, rather than an episode that is about something with comedic elements in it. Which is fair enough, if you've got Buster Keaton in your episode, then I suppose making it an out-and-out comedy is fair enough. But sitting and watching it now, I can't help but think about how the Twilight Zone's reputation for comedy isn't great and the question has often come up as to whether it wasn't good at comedy or whether we're just in a different time now and sometimes comedy doesn't age particularly well. So there is that but we can try and contextualise things as much as we want and put ourselves in a particular time and place but what makes us laugh is first and foremost a very gut reaction and I think unfortunately this just doesn't do that for me. And that massive performance by Stanley Adams as Rollo just makes me wince a little. So if comedy is the goal, then I think it sadly misses the mark. But I will admit that apart from some vague memories of seeing him on television as a child, I couldn't really class myself as a Buster Keaton fan or someone who knows much about him. So in preparation for this, I watched a fair amount of his output online and even today after decades of movies that have been made between his heyday and now, you watch some of his stuff and it's just staggering what he could actually do. Not really knowing much about him and being caught off guard by this stuff in the course of my research, there's no doubt how gifted he was. It was funnier than I was expecting, but most of all what stuck with me is his stunts. The physicality of him. He does things that I'm not even sure guys today would do. And with the knowledge that the safety equipment at that time was probably minimal to non-existent, there is that extra bit of thrill and just sheer admiration for the man. So after discovering this and knowing how revered he is by some people, Once Upon a Time does have a certain charm to it. Seeing Keaton do his silent thing again is like the old gunslinger strapping on his gun belt one last time for a showdown. Except for Keaton, it's a pork pie hat and a stone-faced expression. Clearly he isn't at the height of his physical abilities the way he used to be, but for a man in his 60s he can still move and his staging of the things he does is still very good. It's obvious that these movements and this level of performance is still second nature to him. So it's in that arena, you know, the past master coming back to the thing that made him great, that I wish 
that the episode was just a bit smarter and did have a bit more to say. The silent segment is okay in the introduction of Keaton, but I kind of wish that when he got to 1962, his presence there actually meant something. Some kind of more in-depth comment perhaps on making the most of where you are and the people you're with and if your concerns are the national debt or surplus, in his case, or the price of meat, you know, sure have those concerns, but don't let it stop you being happy in the there and now. Instead of yearning for a different time and place, make where you are the time and place you want to be because it might just be your heyday. And I think those things are there in some small measure, but it's just more or less lost in all of this fuss. Because when Keaton gets to the present day, it's just silliness and hijinks again. He's doing the same shtick, but with sound. Which is admittedly quite interesting to see, but in this framework of the silent movie star plunged into the talky age, I wish they'd dialed back the comedy in the modern day sections and gone for something with a little bit more pathos. Because this, more than any other time, was the time to do it. Buster Keaton and those like him were now old men and women, but they had navigated that great change in the movie landscape, from silent movies to talkies. There are a few comments online that I've seen that say this is a bit of a sad swan song for Buster Keaton. First of all though, it's not his swan song. He did several things after it, including that short film, The Railroader, that I mentioned earlier. But I don't think it's that sad either. You know, for me, it's an interesting failure that does have some charm to it. And while I can't see myself wanting to watch it anytime soon, I think its heart was in the right place. It was made with an affection for Buster Keaton and a respect for him and the kind of films he was putting out in his heyday. Keaton really was that man out of time now when this was made. The world had moved on while he was still in it. I wish they had done more with that, because there is a great story to be told there. They just never managed to tell it. But what they did do was made with good intentions and a respect for Buster Keaton, and I can't really fault it for that at least. To each his own. So goes another old phrase to which Mr. Woodrow Mulligan would heartily subscribe. For he has learned definitely the hard way that there is much wisdom in a third old phrase which goes as follows, stay in your own backyard, to which it might be added and, if possible, assist others to stay in theirs, via, of course, the Twilight Zone. So that is Once Upon a Time. Sadly, a bit of a missed opportunity, I think, to really make something special, but them's the break sometimes. It's number 78 in the run of The Twilight Zone, and that's quite significant in that it is the episode that brings us to the halfway point. Now, after doing this podcast for seven, maybe eight years now, it actually started in late 2010, so we're now in 2018, so at least seven years. It was a three-year project that now is in its seventh year, Mostly due to scheduling rather than anything else. But we are at the halfway point. But um, you know what? I'm quite proud that 
In podcast terms, this is the 123rd episode. So there's been 45 episodes of different things, not just looking at episodes. And that's things like readings, interviews, and so on. And I quite like that, that if there's a different avenue to go down or some sort of special thing to look at, to do that occasionally, I think it breaks things up quite nicely. But here at this halfway point, I think my goal for 2018 is going to be to try and really get some episodes out and get some episodes under our belt. I would really like to, at the very least, finish season three in 2018 and maybe even get into season four. I will try my best, but that's the goal and we'll see how it plays out. So no listener emails this time. So I will just say goodbye and say, if you want to contact me, then email me at tom at the twilightzonepodcast.com and I will take emails or mp3s or feedback on the episodes if you want to send some in. If you want to catch us on Facebook, it is facebook.com slash twilightzonepodcast. If you want to catch up with me on Twitter, it's twilightzonenet. And if you want to support the show, the hosting costs and so on, then for a small donation on patreon.com slash twilight zone podcast you can get bonus episodes and various other things over there so the next episode i'm quite excited about it's a bit of a big one for me so let's go over to rod serling to find out what it is and now mr serling next week on the twilight zone you'll find yourself inexplicably entangled in this dark dungeon you'll meet an incredible group of people who like you will be quite unable to explain how they got there why they got there or how they're going to get out And at the end, we're going to belch you with one of the most surprising endings we've ever had. Next week, five characters in search of an exit on The Twilight Zone. can reduce serious injury by one-third. Does your family have the security of seat belts?